Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jared Pitney, and today I'm joined by Dick Pace, who is the Greene County Coroner. He's also a funeral director and licensed embalmer at Heath Funeral Home, where he also serves as the Vice President of Operations. And so, uh, Dick, thanks so much for making time to come on today. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Have you ever been in a setting like this before? Headphones on, mic, all that? Oh, yeah. Uh, When I went to college at Arkansas State University, my major was radio TV. Really? And uh, then later on, after I was going to college, I started working at KDRS. Okay. uh, When it was out. On radio? Down, no, it's, it was downtown in the old Ford Insurance Building. And then, of course, the uh, tower, tower Drive, and, yeah. and amplifier were all at, uh, at Tower Drive. Yes. And I worked there for a number of years. Worked with people that some people might remember. Larry Kaufman, mm-hmm. uh, Chuck Camfield, uh, Wilma Wheelis. Uh, Ted Rand and uh, Lloyd Emmert and eventually got to do where I was uh, doing play-by-play basketball. Really? We have that in common then. You know, I used to be the voice of the Rams my 10th grade through 12th grade year. Well, I was, uh, I did several basketball games. Uh, Usually I had a a sidekick, and just all depends yep. on who was available at that time. Um, but Larry Kaufman and I did quite a few together, uh, including we did a state tournament when it was in Barton Coliseum in Little Rock. Hmm. We did the state uh, championship games, and um, – we were there for a whole week, and I think we ended up doing something like 18 or 20 games uh, through the week, just one right after another. Wow. And, um, that so, man, was, this is nothing new to you then. No, not really, <laughs> I, except uh, got a lot more noise. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. It's pretty quiet in here. So I have been wanting to have you on for a while, and you're a hard man to catch because you're so busy, obviously, and you don't exactly work an eight-to-five job. No. So um, I am very interested in knowing how did you get into the line of work that you're in? Uh, Most people like to avoid death as long as they possibly can. That's correct. And you have two different jobs that where you're surrounded by it. Well, The first job at the funeral home, uh, I started when I was about, I'm going to say 16 years old. And uh, as any typical new employee, you do a little bit of everything. You mow the yard, uh, wash cars. And back in that time, we were in the ambulance business also. So mm-hmm. we made uh, ambulance calls to homes, to car accidents, uh, and then we're in and out of nursing homes in the hospital. And, and you're 16, so that means it was around what year? Oh, goodness. Uh, that's going to be about uh, 
50, about 63. Okay, all right. And uh, so that was right before I graduated from high school, from Paragol High School. Um, of course, when I went to high school, the high school was on the corner of 7th and Court Street, the old multi-story building. Yeah. And um, and then um, I think it was the next year is when we moved out to the to the new high school, and that was uh, one year before I graduated from high school. Okay, Bill, you know I'm going to ask this question. What was it like uh, being in the building on Seventh and Court? I've I've got this like in my mind. I just have such reverence for that building, probably because I never was in it. Uh, Libby Glasgow was here uh, on the previous podcast, and she was like, it was great in the 80s. It was not good when I taught in it, like, back in the 90s. What was your memories like? Well... Because it was a majestic building. It was. uh, It was sort of awe-inspiring to go to such a large building. Um, Back then... You had Woodrow Wilson, you had Baldwin, you had Elmwood, and all of those students, when it came to the uh, high school, came from all of those schools. So you got to meet new people, new teachers, and a new building. And you go into that building, and it was so large that... um, you had to get used to it. It was a little intimidating. That's right. The uh, The cafeteria was down in the basement. Hmm. And uh, at that time, the United 7th and 8th grade was in the building down the hill from Woodrow Wilson. And they did not have a cafeteria space for us to eat with the... Uh, elementary so when it became lunchtime we had to go from the seventh and eighth grill building all the way up to the high school and at that time we had 30 minutes for lunch oh wow so we had to get in there eat come back to the seventh and eighth grade building and then start classes yes (laughs) that's a challenge (laughs) Uh, so all right, back to your story. You're 16. You're working at Heath Funeral Home. Did you you kept that job all the way through high school? All the way through high school. Okay. And um, and at the radio station. Okay. Yep. Uh, so I had two jobs. And after I graduated from high school in 1965, uh, I continued to work. And then one day I just said, well, it's time to make a decision. And so um, at that time, uh, I thought about radio TV, um, went to work full time at the radio station, but still kept the funeral home as a part time job. And then in 1968, I decided yeah, it's really time to make a decision. So I made the decision to go to mortuary school in Dallas, Texas. Mm. And the schooling is one year. And um, 
the the classes were very similar to what a first year doctor would have if they were attending Baylor University really? School of Medicine. We had some of the instructors, some of the same instructors that uh, were teaching first year students. Um, we had anatomy instructors, microbiology, anatomy, uh, my, uh, chemistry. Uh, in fact, the chemistry instructor uh, was the head chemist for Pierce Chemical Company, which is an embalming fluid company. And um, he was also one of the inventors of uh, a salt substitute that uh, Morton came out with. He was the one that developed that program. And um, you so know, you're sitting under some pretty, uh, pretty bright men and women. Some really bright guys. Uh, <clears throat> in fact. The chemistry instructor, was his name was Harvey Milner. And Harvey and I became pretty good friends during school and afterwards. And so he would, if he developed a new product, he would most often send me some of that product and try it out for him. And uh, I thought that was pretty neat that here he is, in a level that's, you know, two miles higher than I am, and uh, he wants me to test this for him. And um, we did, and uh, some of it worked, some of it didn't work, mm. but uh, he, was, he was a very brilliant y young man. And then, of course, the other instructors, uh, Dr. Norman Biggs was... Uh, head of the anatomy department and uh, stood about four foot six but he knew his stuff <laughs> he knew his stuff but uh, it was in microbiology that's what it that's what it was and he kept telling us we had to learn these different microorganisms and he kept telling us that one day he's going to come into the room and uh, give us a test, and it's going to be a one-word test or one-sentence test, but it's going to have 57 answers. So he came into class one day, and he said, put your books up. You're getting ready to have the test that I warned you about. <clears throat> And it was named the 57 disease-causing organisms, their shape, uh, and something else. And that was the only question. And you had an hour to Jeez. write all of that down. And Did you get it? I got it. Wow. I got it because he made us learn yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. He said, "Because you're gonna, you're gonna have to see this all through your career." Have you seen it all through your career? Seen a lot of it. You know, in in this particular career, um, you deal not only with people that have passed away, uh, 
but their families, uh, you need to know how to, uh, to deal with families. And families are not always in the best of mood, I'll say. Uh, and you run into family situations have to learn that. How do you deal with uh, the family aspect? What is what are some of the lessons you've learned? Well, let me ask you this first. Are, is it you or is it a police officer that typically contacts the family to let them know their loved one has died? Well, if it's an accident or homicide, suicide, anything of that nature, that falls under my responsibility as county coroner to make notification. Now, there's usually uh, police officers that go with me. Uh, oh, so you actually go in person. Yes, yes. Now, wow. sometimes you have people that are out of town, and you have to make that phone contact, and that's the worst thing you can do is tell uh, someone's loved one that I'm sorry, but your aunt, uncle, brother, son, whoever it might be, has passed away. Um, so you want to be able to make the personal visit. How many, and I know there's, I'm sure there's no way you have a number on this. How many times have you personally had to contact a family uh, over? Cause you've been in this for 46 years. Yeah. How, you have a guess. It would be just a guess, but uh, over the years, I'm going to say 50. Uh, that may seem like a low number, but um, you'd be surprised how many family members that you have to contact that don't live in this area. Uh, how many have you actually made visits to, though? Are those are just 50 that are you saying those are just 50 that you've called? No, 50 that I've either called okay. or had other family members actually meeting with people in person. Yeah. I couldn't tell. I couldn't begin to tell you. I don't Hundreds, know. Thousands? Yeah. Um, and that's a tough situation. So how do you do that? Like what is the, from, from your training and your experience? Well, the first thing that we have learned to do as coroner is when you go to make a death notification, you want to introduce yourself. Like I go to the door, I knock on the door, and sometimes people are reluctant to open the door because they don't know who's there. Mm -hmm. And then I have to tell them, my name is Dick Pace. I'm from the office of the Greene County Coroner. I need to come in and speak with you. At that point, you're like, okay, somebody died. Just who? And then you go in, and hopefully they're going to be sitting down and not standing up. And um, I'll usually begin with, are you related to so-and-so? And they'll say either, yes, that's my son, that's my husband, that's my uncle, that's a cousin, that's my sister. And then you say, well, I have some bad news. Um, they were involved in an automobile accident, and uh, 
they were taken to the hospital or they weren't taken to the hospital or died on the scene. And um, uh, I said, I can't tell you all of the particulars right now because the police agencies haven't concluded their investigation. And by that time, they're, they're all to pieces. So what do you do when that happens? You just try to console them as best you can. If they're by themselves, we always try to get in touch with some other family member mm. and have them come be with that person uh, so they won't be alone. Uh, of course, the people always have questions. And, um, like, I don't suffer things like right. That. I don't have all of the information at that time because, yeah. you know, I've been called to the scene. You know, I make the removal of the person who has died, and then I have to start putting the pieces of the puzzle together with the help of the police agencies. Um, and that may take a while because. They're going to have to do their measurements. They're going to have to look at their pictures. We compare pictures when I take pictures, make sure that we're looking at the same same situation. So what are you actually looking at whenever you're there? Well, I'm looking at the condition of the car or truck or whatever, uh, things, obstacles that may be surrounding uh, the scene, um, take pictures from different angles so that uh, this angle doesn't look the same as this angle, and it gives you a better perspective of, uh, of what perhaps might have happened. And then after all of that, then we usually talk with the investigating officers um, and talk with any bystanders or any other people that are in the vehicle or at the scene and get their perspective from it and then draw our own conclusions. This is probably a very bizarre question, but I'm curious. Who would develop the film for y'all back in the day? I know now everything's like digital. Oh. Did y'all have like... Was there like we a- had film... Sure. Who had to, who had to develop that? Was that like a division of the police or like at the? No. Usually it was a local. Oh wow. Film developer. Okay. But we always told these people, don't look. don't be surprised yeah. at what you see, yeah. and don't say anything about that. Gotcha. So, yeah. That that makes it tough. Yeah. And so, are you called to the? Do I have this right? When you're called to the scene, um, you said it's it can be homicide, it can be suicide, homicide, car wreck, car accident, train accident, just anything, but like okay. what's considered natural causes. The office of the coroner is responsible for investigating all nursing home deaths, all emergency room deaths. Any death in the hospital from a person from a nursing home who's been there less than five days. Um, Children, all children up to the age of 18 uh, have to be investigated. 
What do you not? What do you not work? <laughs> what situation do you are you do you not show up to? Uh, we we do natural deaths as well. Okay. I mean, if somebody that may be under hospice care. Uh, so pretty much a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. If you're able to get to it, you're in. Um, and as someone, so obviously there are sometimes you pull up to uh, to a scene, you know the person is gone. But I guess, is it legally, they can't be pronounced dead until the coroner pronounces them? Is that how it works? Or is it not a legal issue? It's just uh, kind of a... On an accident like that, they're not considered dead until the coroner pronounces them. Now, they may have have died earlier, you know, in in an accident. The accident may have occurred at uh, 6 p.m., but the distance from the accident to where I am and to get there mm-hmm. is going to be a, sometimes a lengthy time. I'll give you an example. Has it been very long ago, we had a car train accident in Delaplane. I'm in Paragool. Delaplane's 20 miles away. So I can't pronounce that person until I get there. So they're not officially considered dead until they're pronounced, even though they are dead. Do you ever walk up on any of these scenes anymore, like with some timidity and fear of like, man, I don't know what I'm about to find, and I don't think I want to see it? Or is it this point all the time you still have that in you? So it's not like you become completely desensitized to it, or it's like it doesn't matter what I see, nothing's going to shock me. There's still like a man, I don't really want to see this. I mean, that's just part of the job. Um, probably the worst thing is a pedestrian train accident. Um, the, um, it's just something that you don't see on an everyday basis. And, um, fortunately, um, all engines are on all railroad tracks have video cameras on them hmm. and then there used to be a a local office in Jonesboro that would send me a copy of the video of the train so that I can take that in perspective as to was it an accident was it a suicide? Uh, just exactly what was it? Mm-hmm. Um, you also can see some horrible reactions to people that may have a foot caught in the rail or something, mm. and you see the reaction on their face right before the train hits them. How do you get those images out of your mind? Or do you just not? Is that just part of it? Because that's, uh, let me say this before you answer that. That's traumatic, right? Like if we, if, if someone came in here and said, I just saw someone get by a train, we'd say that was a traumatic experience that you saw that happen. And they might have to go to therapy for that. That's because, right. Because like, I can't get that image out of them. I can't sleep at night, whatever else. How do you deal with, you have seen traumatic event after traumatic event after traumatic event 
How have you learned to deal with that? <clears throat> well, at very at the very first, it really did bother me. It still bothers me, but like I'm, a different way. I have to tell myself, this is the job that you have to do. Hmm. Uh, you can't let your emotions get involved, although they do get involved, particularly if you know the individual oh, man, yeah. that, that you're picking up. That's hard to deal with. I have to deal with myself sometime in order to um, get through the situation. And actually, sometimes the family helps me get through it. Really? The family of the deceased uh, will actually help me get through that. Uh, maybe there's a story they tell that, Something happened prior to this that helps me visualize what happened. And uh, it still doesn't make it any easier, but it makes me understand a little better. Yeah. And then there are those you just scratch your head and say, why? Mm-hmm. Why did they do this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um Sometimes families agree with you. Sometimes they don't. Um, you know, and I, you know, if they don't agree with me, then I said, I will say to them, give me your perspective on what you think happened. And then I have to put that together with witness statements the statements from the engineer, the video from the train, and just try to deal with it. Mm-hmm. What do you think is more difficult for you? Is it the the work with uh, being a coroner? Is it funeral home director? Is it embalming? What is the most difficult thing to deal with are the death of children. Yeah. Um, it's you have to have to stop take a step back when you get a call on the death of a child because what what you decide along with the medical examiner because all children have to be autopsied hmm. i did not know that yeah anyone 18 years of age or younger just because it's so abnormal. Right. Um, and families don't like that. Uh, you know, when I have to meet with the family, whether it's at the hospital, whether it's at the scene of the accident or at their residence, because <clears throat> at the residence, if a, if a child dies at the residence then we have to get the story of where were, where was the child, what was they doing, and where did they end up. And uh, 
that's difficult sometimes for to talk with the with the parents or the grandparents as to for them to relive what actually happened mm. uh, because that's like putting them through it twice. Yes. How, what if you you know everybody who's listening to this will at some point. Um, have to learn how to grieve well with somebody else who has lost a loved one. What advice would you give to someone who is trying to help somebody else through their grief? So from your experience of, of dealing with this? Uh, well, probably the first thing is whether it's a traumatic death a natural death, or whatever kind of death. It's it's what they feel in their soul about death in itself. Some people have different concepts of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my my advice would be Talk to somebody. Talk to a minister uh, that you can talk to. Talk to your family. And unfortunately, sometimes um, families come apart when it comes to a death. Mm -hmm. Uh, There may be different sides of feelings. But you can get through it. It's it's difficult, but I think uh, someone that deals with death on a regular basis, like a minister, mm-hmm. a grief counselor, can help the people go through that. Yeah. Now, the death of a child, that's probably the utmost, what do I want to say here, the the most difficult thing to get through. Yeah. I mean, this is this is your child that has died, and uh, maybe it's only two or three years old, mm-hmm. or maybe it's a teenager. You don't know what's going to happen as they grow. Yeah, um, you just hope that the way they are brought up and what they have learned in their more mature years uh, will give them a little advice to, to live by. You know, Blake and Haley Deck were on the, they were the second episode we ever we had the mayor on our first episode, then Blake and Haley, and, uh, who obviously lost two kids in an accident. And they're a great example of what you're talking about. I, of, I, I know them. Yes, I know you do. And, that, you know, they were, they're a couple who you look at now, and in their own words, they did experience their greatest nightmare, but it was through what they thought would kill them, actually, end up making them stronger and allowed them, not that they would ever want that to happen, but they've been able to come out on the other side and experience life really in a deeper way than they ever could have before. And their story, I think, gives us hope. It gives people hope to be like, hey, they're, this doesn't have to be also the death of you. Like, this doesn't have to be the end for your family. Like, they're, this can't right. be redeemed. That can. <clears throat> this may sound silly, 
but it could also make you stronger. Yeah, that's what they said. Uh, they're grieving at the time for the loss of their children, and they obviously have to get through that. But going through that can also build your faith mm-hmm. and your strength. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, I think they've done a tremendous job uh, with that. Yeah, not that they, again, would want that or that it's now life is just totally easy and they don't think about it, but what a great example. Yeah, of someone who would say, yeah, it has made us better, has made us stronger, like what you're talking about. I'm I'm curious, um, what do you feel like as you've been around death so much, the embalming, uh, being a coroner, what, what have you learned along the way? How do you think maybe it's changed you or maybe changed your perspective on life or death? Well, death in itself is difficult to deal with. Now, in the embalming aspect of it, if if that person has been sick or they've been in an accident, so many times they're disfigured enough that the family really can't view that person. In my mind, being able to do the embalming and fix that person to a more natural mm-hmm. appearance is my ministry to that family. Hmm. I've never thought about it like that before. Uh, it makes sense. I mean, if I can create a more natural, lifelike experience for that family, that's the good I get out of it. Mm -hmm. And when they tell me he looks great, she looks great, that's my reward. Mm -hmm. Um, And I work very hard at that. How long does that whole process take? just all depends on what you have to work with. Uh, I've worked on people for as much as three days. Wow. Just to try to get them back to a more natural appearance. Um, Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you have to advise them, I don't know that I would leave the casket open. That's one of the most difficult things in my job that I have to do is I would not advise you to leave the casket open. Do you ever advise people not to even look? Or is that like, no, no matter what, you want to get a look? Yeah. Um, you know, they, uh, they'll they look at me and say, surely we can see or her. And I said, I will do the very best that I can. And if you absolutely want to see that person, I will allow it. But I'm not sure you want that casket open for public visitation. Mm -hmm. 
and I even hate to say this, but sometimes people are cruel. And they say things off of the top of the head that they didn't think about. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably especially in moments like that when you're grieving or in shock or angry over whatever's happened. Yeah. It's um, it's a difficult situation. Um, and... Um, you know, I have been to scenes where a child is involved and maybe the parents come up and they want to see the child right then. Hmm. I will always tell them my thoughts, but I can't make that final decision. Mm-hmm. They have to make that final decision. Mm-hmm. I, I will... Try to tell them this is the situation. Uh, briefly tell them the condition uh, if they want to hear it. Sometimes the family will decide not to see them until until the preparation has been finished. And sometimes they want to hold that child. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a difficult thing for them to do. But it is their child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's going to give them some comfort, then I think it needs to be allowed. Yeah. Well, the grieving process is just so different for everybody, right? You never know how two different people are going to grieve. Yeah. Uh, some people are expecting the unexpected. Um, some people don't. They just can't physically and emotionally handle it at that particular time. Um, we try to be as comforting and as, I don't know what else you'd say, comforting and do the wishes that they want within the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. That's what we went to school for. But school does not teach you Every situation. Yeah. Um, we go, we go to um, we go to seminars and um, conventions that sometimes will actually portray what has happened to an individual. They would have a a a subject there that they would actually work on and they're given they're giving you a scenario of this is what has happened to this individual and they may have um, props and uh, cosmetics and everything 
to try to portray that particular person's situation. Mm -hmm. And then after you're able to ask questions and to view the person, then the, um, the person who's going to do the work will step up and say, now, this is the scenario of what happened to this person. And now I'm going to attempt to make this person look more natural. Mm -hmm. It may take me an hour. It may take me two hours. Or it may take me two days. Sometimes you have to do certain processes and then let that sit until it dries, firms up, whatever materials you're working with. You have to take it a step at a time. It almost seems like to be in a bomber is it's uh, part science, but it's also part art. Yes. Uh, the, in fact, the class that you take in school is called restorative art. Wow. You've got an embalming class that teaches you how to do the embalming and what not to do uh, because of certain conditions within the body. But when the embalming part is finished, then the restorative art part comes in. Mm. And that may be the next day or maybe two days. Um, and uh, you might have a picture to go by and you might not. Mm. So all these years, let's see, again, 46 years you've been doing this. Um, and how many more years do you think you have left? Do you know? How many would you until, like? Until I'm my own customer. <laughs> uh, do you know the way you want to go? I'm guessing in your sleep, painless? Yeah. Um, I think I'd just rather go to sleep and not wake up. Yeah. So uh, what would you say, though, as you think about all the years you've been doing this, and, and how old are you now? What are you, how old are you? What's your age? I'm 74. 74. All right, so you're a 74-year-old man. Looking back, but then also I've been thinking about, yeah, your own death. How has all of this changed how you view death, how you view maybe even life? Well, <clears throat> certainly I do not want to have a traumatic death. Mm -hmm. I don't want to make... Uh, a um, a severely ill person and have to deal with chemotherapy, uh, you know, having limbs cut off, which I have had. Yes. Yep. Uh, I've had a foot cut off, uh, but my my passion about that is and uh, you can ask you know my son Stephen uh, when uh, when I had my 
foot amputated, that was a pretty tough blow on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, first thing that ran through my mind was, how am I going to manage this? Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife was on one side of me. Stephen was on the other side. And uh, my wife said, you can do this. We're going to help you. Stephen stepped up to me and said, Dad, it's only a foot. It's not your life. Mm. You can handle this if you want to. Mm. So that gave me time to really do some thinking. And uh, I was in the hospital for three weeks. I was in rehab for three weeks. Rehab was probably the best thing that I ever did. Hmm. In what way? Well, number one, the uh, people that did the rehab would not take no for an answer. Hmm. You know, you say, I can't do this. And they would say, there's no such thing as no. They made you do it. And um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, and I accomplished what I set out to do. Mm-hmm. I accomplished that I'm not going to be an invalid. I'm not going to just sit, sit and do nothing. Uh, I'm going to do as much as I can as long as I can. Mm-hmm. And knock on wood, so far I have been able to to do that. Yeah. Uh, now, people will tell me, but you're going to fall. And I said, yeah. Rehab told me one thing. They told me it's not if you fall, but when you fall and know how to handle it. Hmm. Um, now that was, a, I'm gonna tell you that was a tough job. Um, but I think I have mastered it enough that I don't, I don't have to have people around me all the time to help me. Now, I don't don't deny help mm-hmm. if I need it. Sure, it's important. But I don't want help if I can do it myself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, we see we see all kinds of situations in the funeral home, in the coroner's office, and. Uh, People that have lived through some terrific accidents, some uh, terrific um, suicides, and they've made it through. Mm-hmm. 
They've attempted suicide. But thank goodness that uh, they were able to make it through that with their own strength and the strength of someone who was there for them. Mm-hmm. That's good. I want to end here. What is um, What have you enjoyed the most about your job or jobs? People. I enjoy people. Um, the... Um, Again, this this involves both sides. Um, if if I know the people that are having a death in their family, and again I can produce a product, so to speak, that when they come in, uh, that. They're completely pleased, and they tell me that, or I can detect that from from their faces. That's my reward. Hmm. Um, the um, the people that don't. that don't think that we can do what we say we can do. And sometimes we can't. But when it comes to that time, that we can actually do what we say we can do, and they are pleasantly surprised when they see that individual in the casket, like I said earlier, <clears throat> that's my ministry. Mm-hmm. And that's that's my reward, that I can do that and make them happy. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a, a great place to end as we think about a job where, again, you're surrounded by death, but you're viewing it through a ministry of how can I bring about some happiness? How can I bring about some joy? How can I bring about some life in the midst of all the death. That is an incredible ministry and appreciate all the years that you served in that capacity. Um, I hope that I, I know I've, I've had to uh, lock arms with you with my minister hat on. I hope no time soon I have to be on the other side of, well, but um, it's good I, to know that if I am, I'm in, I'm in good hands. Right. Well, you know, from your own families, and that I have dealt with your family. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and that makes that makes me happy that a family like yours has used us, continues to use us, not only in death but in life. Mm-hmm. I deal with your dad regularly. Mm-hmm. I've dealt with you for years, yep. and um, and that that makes me happy. Yeah, uh, when when I can do something like that. Well, and 
the feelings mutual. It's nice to be able to, because that's such a, a, a sad and hard time for people. When you can walk in, you can see someone who's been around as long as you have. That's comforting to people. You know, it just is. And well, so I hope so. Yeah, it is. So, can I ask a question? Yeah, please. For do, Jared's yeah. sake, which cemetery is your favorite? Oh yeah, that's right. I'm a big. I'm I a, can't believe you didn't ask that question. Well, you know, there are. Um, I don't know what there are now. I used to visit. I used to have a map of every cemetery in Greene County. I believe there are like 84 or 85. Something, something like that. Something like that. It's, it's, it's crazy. And there are some that are even like in the middle of a field in Shugtown. And it's so bizarre because you have like the one in Shugtown that just came to my mind. You've got like 25 headstones and 20 of them will be kids. It's it, I don't even understand it. But these guys, <laughs> we all joke about it. I, I still enjoy, I used to do it with my grandpa. Uh, we'd go look at cemeteries, like just read the headstones. I wonder what they did for a living. So, um, yes, that's a great question. What cemetery do you think is most beautiful? Which one, what's your favorite? That's, that's the question you asked, right, Bill? What's your favorite? Okay, my favorite, I have several, but probably my favorite is... Morrow Cemetery. Um, Morrow Cemetery is located at Stanford, in between Stanford and Beach Grove. I'm not sure I've been there. And the reason that I like Morrow Cemetery is because the cemetery is built on a hillside. And you can stand in that cemetery and overlook the valley by Stanford. And it's the most peaceful place really I have ever been. Man, I'm ex- that's a great Bill, great job on Thank asking you. that question. And I'm looking at it. I'm on the clearing map. my schedule well, the rest if, of the day. If if you how do you get there? Okay. If you go out west on four twelve, yeah. turn right on County Road six oh nine. I'm taking notes. And you'll go past Commissary Church of Christ and Union Grove Cemetery. And then that road turns to the left. Just follow that road all around until you're just about to intersect with Highway 141 uh, North. And on your right is Morrow Cemetery right before you intersect with Highway 141. M-O-R-R-O-W. M-O-R-R-O-W. There's a Morrow family that's buried there. Okay. Man, Bill, home run on the question. Thank you. Now, of course, I have to, I have to say I like Linwood because that's where all of my family's buried. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, um, the calmness... I guess, of Morrow Cemetery. Um, you're standing there in a cemetery overlooking a valley. Mm. And it's when, when the weather's coming in, that's the best place to be. Wow. I'm going to go buy some uh, plots. Is that the right word? <laughs> Lots. Right Lots, okay. I'm going to go buy some out there. Thank you so much for all that you do. Thanks for coming on. Um, 
I'd love to have you on again. I've got probably 50 million questions <laughs> I'd like to ask you. Well, thank so. you for inviting me. I've, I've loved it tremendously. Good. Good. Thank you. So that concludes our conversation with Mr. Dick Pace, Bill. Um, how was that for you? Because I'll be honest, I was totally engaged. Yeah, me too. There were so many more questions I could have asked Yep. as well. Um, I actually am very glad that you brought up the question about the cemeteries. I cannot believe I did not ask that. I'm kind of disappointed in myself. Um, and also, I didn't even think about bringing up the fact that um, that Mr. Pace actually embalmed his own parents. Which, to me, I'm like, man, how could he do that? But I was talking with Steve and his son about it, and he said, well, the way his dad looked at it was, this is one of the last ways that I can really serve my parents well. Because he knew he would do a good job, and he therefore felt like, man, this is a way that I can truly love them and honor them. Like, how cool is that? Cool, and I came to imagine. Exactly. It's, yeah, there's a lot of feelings I have about that. But, yeah. uh, man, Mr. Pace, thank you so much for all that you do um, and for creating space to come on and share with us a little bit about it. Um, if you are still listening, I just want to say again, thanks so much for tuning in. Um, please check us out on our different social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we have a website, pericolepodcast.com. If you uh, listen to us on iTunes, please take time to give us just a five-star rating. Um, that helps people find our podcast and learn more about just the incredible people that live here in our city. So again, thanks for listening. Until next time.